The podcast you are listening to is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. I want some arrests, felony arrests, and a couple of bodies on slabs in the morgue. They can be your guys' bodies or some of that trash up there. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sounds are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergy. With me is Thrasher. We brought these back from the war. They still work. And we're talking about Death Wish 5 million, no, Death Wish 3. This is the one that came out in 85, so just three years after Death Wish 2. Uh, as the poster says, he's back in New York bringing justice to the streets. Ironically, it was filmed in England for tax reasons. <laughs> and and you can tell on some of the exteriors, because if you've seen like films actually filmed in New York in the 70s and 80s, all the exteriors seem just a little bit off. Well, in the first one, uh, the first Death Wish was filmed in New York. To great effect, they filmed in, in Central Park and some of these other areas. But, um, but yeah, this one, I, I think this this might be the most easily watchable of the Death Wish films. It's less ugly, I think, than Death Wish Two, and it's uh, it's just more ridiculous. I, I don't know what else. It feels very more eighties than Death Wish Two did. Yeah, this this is I think the version of Death Wish that everyone remembers when they think of the series. Right. It's not. And yet, I mean, look at how far removed this is from the original Death Wish. I would say you can kind of make the comparison of, say, you know, First Blood to Rambo First Blood Part 2. As, as far as the, the tone uh, and and the themes and the character, yes. Although it does, strangely enough, it does acknowledge the series continuity on a number of occasions. It, it does, and I don't think it really has to, but that's nice of it for trying. Also features a... Um, very young Alex Winter. Yes! Yeah, the the best... So, I watched this with my wife, and she says the best thing about watching these movies is seeing the people who go on to have amazing careers. And it's always with the punks. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's that way throughout pretty much all the, all the series. I, but yeah, there's even like a small part we'll see in the next week's Death Wish 4. I think has Danny, a young Danny Trejo or something in it. But yeah, there's really something... As it turns out, it must have been, you know, a, the kind of role they need. And they need a lot of punks in these movies. And Alex Winter, um, he, I don't know if he was born in England, but he spent some time living in England. So he had a, a, a passport and all these things. And it made it easier for him to be hired to do this film in England. And I think that that's part of the reason why he got uh, the job. Even though his character's name is Hermosa, right? But he doesn't try to make the guy Latino or anything, I think, in his accent, and doesn't have any dialogue at all, really. Well, well the, the the gang in this movie, they're a very inclusive, very multicultural gang. All right, there is, but having, you know, when they cast Alex Winter in the part, calling having him play a guy called Hermosa perhaps isn't the smartest uh, move, but the 80s were a different time. 
Well, the other thing that, that jump that jumps out at me is, you know, it, you said it makes it easier for him to film there, and and that may very well be why he got the job. Well, as the logo that explodes on the screen at the very beginning of this movie tells us, this is a Canon film, and if there's two things Canon films are, they are cheap and easy. Yeah, cheap and easy uh, would also be a good name for a production company. And so I looked over. In 1985, the domestic box office gross. Where do you want to guess uh, Death Wish 3 placed on there? Um, domestic meaning United States and Canada. 103, but I bet it was so cheap to make it still turned a phenomenal profit. Uh, so 54. Wow. So but um, it made uh, around $16 million. Uh, so some movies it did better than are uh, Clue, which has become kind of a cult classic with uh, oh, Tim Curry and, and all that. Um, it did better than the Val Kilmer uh, nerd comedy Real Genius. Um, Which is another but, but cult uh, classic. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, but uh, some of those that did better on video, right? But examples of other stuff that came out in 85 that did a bit better are things like uh, Lady Hawk made a little bit more than this movie with Rutger Hauer. Uh, even Porky's Revenge, the third one, made more money than Death Wish 3. Um, Which is, I did, suspect, a series we're going to cover at some point. I think so, yeah. And Santa Claus the movie did a little better than Death Wish 3. But in 85, the number, the top three movies for context are number three, Rocky Four, number two, Rambo First Blood Part Two, <laughs> and number one, Back to the Future. Wow. Stallone's in that one too, but you got to look really hard to see him. You do, yeah. I was going to look in try and make a Beverly Hills Cop a Stallone thing, but there wasn't a Beverly Hills Cop in 85. Hey, you got to you need 1.21 gigawatts, then you'll see some serious shit. Right, right. Um, And we got, you know, speaking of Stallone, later this year in theaters, we have Rambo, I think, Last Blood uh, coming out. I, I really don't like that title. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's a presumptuous title because I bet they can squeeze two more movies out of the franchise, then another movie to pass the torch, and then a whole new set of movies with a young Rambo. And Stallone's also talked about doing another Rocky movie, um, separate from the Creed series, uh, which is odd, but who knows? <laughs> uh, so this so I talked about how this this uh, film acknowledges a lot of the serious continuities but it in when it begins it begins with a uh, a whole big diversion because it, it it starts with with Bronson visiting visiting New York and we don't know why because as far as we know he's never coming back because of the incidents of the first film um, but he's visiting it's it's a problem that a lot of action movie sequels have. He's vi he's apparently visiting a close friend we have never heard about or seen him interact with before who lives in this slum. But Bronson shows up seconds after he's beaten practically to death by a bunch of the uh, street punks, including Alex Winter. And because he's in the room with a dead body, uh, he is arrested. Yeah, and I do think you get some fun with uh, Paul Kersey in jail, you know, beating up another guy that's in the cell. Like, that it, it is a classic kind of prison thing. But this trope about, oh, this this dear friend that we only see in, like, a sequel, like, four movies down the line, is um, 
is very tired, it's very forced, and I've never really seen it work, even if the chemistry is good between the actors. Well, we, we never even learn what uh, what Paul Kersey's history is with this guy he's visiting, because he, he, knows, he knows he's risking his life and his freedom by going to New York. So the person he's visiting better be goddamn important to him. But, like... It's it's it seems like this friend is only there so that he has an apartment to live in rent free for a month after the body is cleared out. Yeah, um, it's a bit. Yeah, it's not the best uh, setup. But what I do like is you you have um, not exactly in the same way with Ochoa and Death Wish one and two, but in this one you have Inspector Richard Schreiker played by Ed Lauder, who, as you think more cops would, uh, recognizes. Paul Kersey as the uh, vigilante killer man from the other films. Yeah, and he and he does something that I've been kind of waiting for this series to tackle. He's a guy that wants to be complicit with Paul Kersey's uh, vigilantism, and he 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 you know keeps him in, he keeps him in the cooler for a few days to show he's serious before letting a public defender uh, get him out. But he he essentially he tell he 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 sort of forces a deal on Kersey. It's like you know you 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 kill and injure a few people, then let my police officers make some arrests so that they look good. I'm gonna look the other way. You can do your business and then leave New York. It, it, it's a realistic deal, especially when you maybe realistic isn't the right word, but it it, it is nice to have the police kind of work with Kersey and have it be more direct, not have it be something hidden. Cause apparently New York has become like this, like almost Mad Max, the warriors level shit show as portrayed <laughs> in this movie. And it, it, the, the building he's in is his friend's old building. And it has a lot of very old, I, I was quite surprised to see, you know, mainly like older actors. And I wonder if that's to make Charles Bronson seem younger I, it's got to be that, or that they're or they're just cheaper to hire. But yeah, with 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 the notable exception of the uh, of the, I think it's supposed to be a Puerto Rican couple that lives there. Yeah, everyone's a retiree. Mm-hmm. And it makes uh, as with the other movies, you have an amusing scene where Paul Kersey is talking about food. He talks about borscht. He gets invited for a meal by the neighbors, and something about uh, Charles Bronson talking about food is always funny to me. <laughs> I just now, now I'm imagining him at a at what is it the, at, at Denny's? Hey, Pally, I'll order the Rudy Tootie Fresh and Fruity Combo. I'll take a I'll take a fettuccine Alfredo to go <laughs> sauce on the side. Yeah. Do you have one of those baconators, Pally? <laughs> What's it? You know, you know what? Put the wasabi on the side. Desna. If, if I, I wish Charles Bronson, um, you know, lived long enough for YouTube, if only to see him on the Hot One show eating hot wings. <laughs> mm, this is a pretty spicy one. Like I, I imagine he would next. I imagine he would eat them but have no reactions. Like, I tell you what, it's burning the roof of my mouth. 
It's funny you say that. On uh, on Amazon Prime, where they're showing a bunch of these Death Wish, uh, Death Wish movies streaming in the United States, uh, they have a whole lot of Charles Bronson, and I was kind of dipping into a few different ones because I haven't seen him much, uh, aside from Death Wish and some of the Clint Eastwood um, movies. And he, he just always has that, like, flat, affected delivery. And I don't know if he doesn't give a shit, but, like, I, I, reading some of the making of uh, books uh, on these movies... He just said he was just a real professional that showed up to work, did the work, and then went home and was kind of quiet. Kind of matches what I've read about Tommy Lee Jones. Kind of like a no-nonsense uh, no nonsense sort of guy. Um, and on the other hand, I found a delightful clip with uh, Kurt Russell saying when he was younger, he worked on a TV movie with Charles Bronson. And he got Charles Bronson uh, a birthday gift. And Charles Bronson looked real sad and said, no one ever gave me one of those before. And so when it was Kurt Russell's birthday, he got them both skateboards, and they were both on skateboards <laughs> in the back lot. And uh, Wow. One wishes there was a photo of that. That'd be something, huh? That would be pretty cool. But yeah, it's... But you mentioned also you mentioned all the people like living in living in in the apartment. Strangely enough, they give everybody like a little bit of business. Like there's the there's the old there's the old Jewish couple who are always inviting people over for stuffed cabbage. Uh, there's the retiree who who uh, oh well he actually he's not really reti- he's retired from whatever he used to do and now he owns a little shop that. Uh, that repairs uh, watches and parking meters and cab meters, who looks and talks just like Ernest Borgnine, but is not Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, that, that's that's really quite something. I, I bet they tried to go for Ernest Borgnine and couldn't get him uh, for whatever reason. And having uh, Charles Bronson have so many you know friends with him, that's he hasn't had that in the prior films, and it it, it humanizes the character of Paul Kersey a bit. And makes him less creepy. He's no longer one man on a mission. He's inspiring his, you know, mostly elderly uh, neighbors to rise up and and take the streets back. Well, you know what what strikes me about this movie? So, like around around this one uh, this one apartment building where only nice old couples live, it is a post apocalyptic war zone. Uh, to to the point, and, and and at least at least with the guy who runs the the meter repair shop, they make it clear that you know he he hasn't moved because when it comes down to it, he's stubborn and also he doesn't have any place to go. This so this apartment where all the nice people live, it is surrounded by what appears to be post apocalyptic war zone, to, to the point where you know you wonder why they don't just leave. And the only character that really establishes why he doesn't leave is the Ernest Borgnine guy who runs the, the little shop that repairs uh, uh, cab meters, parking meters, and watches. And he and he just says, you know, he's stubborn, but also he doesn't have anywhere else to go. He doesn't really have family anywhere or any place he particularly wants to go. But this, the people in this apartment get so inspired by Bronson and so heavily mobilized, you kind of wonder, and then you later find out they have so many weapons on hand you you then wonder why they didn't just take back this neighborhood in a violent uprising years before. Uh, yeah, you almost wish there's some backstory, like maybe someone did, but then got like, you know, maybe half of the half of the neighbors got wiped out in this failed coup, <laughs> and they're just waiting for someone to lead them again. But that, yeah, that they already seem sort of armed and kind of. You know, certainly they've lived in this area long enough where they're 
uh, beleaguered and, among other things, pissed off that this is going on, that um, they're just waiting for the magical Charles Bronson to waltz in and uh, and lead them to salvation is is a bit strange. Uh, you had mentioned that they were mainly old, and then there was a young couple, um, Rodriguez and Maria, and Maria is played by Marina Sirtis of uh, Star Trek fame. Counselor Troy herself. And I and again I love I love seeing her. This was two years before uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation. I, I believe she had done a few canon films in this time. Mm-hmm. And like I and knowing you know how how beloved she would become as Counselor Troy, it makes me so disappointed how little the film uses her. Uh, she barely she barely gets any dialogue. Uh, you know I, I'm not sure I don't think she even has a one conversation with Bronson she's mostly uh screaming in Spanish when she's attacked by punks but like every like every young woman in these movies she only exists to be terrorized raped and eventually killed uh by the punks and I've I'm not three movies in I'm getting real frustrated with that that that's that's the only that's the only thing this movie series knows how to do with the female characters. Yeah, it doesn't treat women very well as a whole. Um, it it is kind of interesting when when she gets raped and killed to to see the trauma that her husband Rodriguez goes through because we're used to seeing um, that only happening to relatives of uh, Paul Kersey, and now we see it happen to to someone else and and with Maria you know they they save her a few times beforehand but he can't that final time but you yeah, can but you know it's coming but it's also it's also more to bring up more contrast between the 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 first film the second film and this third film i still contend that when the first film portrays rape it's portraying it as something as something horrific but both this week's movie and last week's movie, I really feel like they're fetishizing the act. Like the the way it's filmed, I feel like they're expecting somebody to get off on it, and that that's makes me pretty uncomfortable, frankly. Yeah, you're having the 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 breasts like well lit in frame, and it, it's not as bad as the one in two where the woman is on all fours. Like that one was really quite uh, beyond the pale, in my opinion. But this, I mean, that there's been rapes as central themes in three movies in a row is and, and they're all directed by Michael Winner. Um it's not to say that we don't see this in, in the other films, but it's portrayed in a in a different way that maybe uh, Michael Winner had a had a thing for had a fetish for that sort of thing. I don't know. And I haven't seen enough of his films to, to make an opinion. But it's definitely uh Charles Bronson from all accounts was was disgusted at, he had no idea how um, explicit the rape scene was in Death Wish 2 and was really mad, but yet he still agreed to work with Michael Winner on Death Wish 3. Well, uh, I mean, d- he... Despite he, all he that. Was, like, he, he... He strikes me as just kind of like a working actor who you, you give him a job, he shows up and does the job, and he doesn't particularly think about it, which which might have to do with his sort of, like, calm, even... Just like the the way the way he acts, and and that is a that is a way to do the job of an actor is to just treat it like a job, uh, and it, it in many cases leads to some interesting performances. Uh, but yeah, it's 
it's I'm dreading to know how that's going to escalate in the later movies. Right. Um, so you have the gang members in this film. We talked a little bit about Alex Winter. I don't think this crew is as memorable as some of the other ones we've seen in Death Wish one or two. There, there's um, there, there, there's certainly more to their costumes going on, but other than that, they. It, none of them really jumped out to me. Uh, the giggler is okay. I mean, maybe he has some business going on. Well, he's the only one that has anything to make him stand out, and that's mm-hmm. his thing. Where like he likes to giggle as he's doing as he's doing crimes, uh, and and that and that becomes a running thing as we see him in several several moments in this movie snatching purses, running away, giggling, and we see several people's failed attempts to stop him. Um, and it's okay. So this so this so this gang who ostensibly is Bronson's target because when Bronson is in the lockup in the beginning of the movie, he's in there with the gang's leader. Um, this guy <laughs> in with a, I, what I can only describe as a reverse mohawk, a full head of hair with one stripe shaved bald going all the way down the <laughs> middle of his head. And they all have like, they don't, they all have like this symbol on them that somebody clearly cared about designing where it's like a red, a vertical red line and two uh, black slashes across that line, like an equal sign. We never learn their name. We never learn what that means, but I love that detail. But anyway, yeah, he's, he's locked, you know, he's locked up with the, the, the gang, the gang leader and the gang leader, you know, threatens him uh, because he wanted to, he wanted to kill Bronson while in the lockup. And, it's one of those. Well, we can't. We can't go after him. He has a clean arrest record. He was in the lockup when we first saw him. What did you arrest him for then? It's like you clearly, clearly, like the police have probable cause to go after every single member of this gang. They just don't. Which is why they send in Bronson. And it's and it's like the people uprising. It's like why haven't the police arrested these people long before? Every time we see the gang, they're in a room loaded with drugs and stolen property. Surely you could have done a raid. Well, the more I think about this, just came to me. But the more I think about uh, the deal uh, Bronson makes with um, the the Bennett Cross at the beginning, detector. Oh, never mind. Yeah, uh, Shriker. Thanks. Uh, at the beginning is. Think about it like it's sort of the perfect plan because if he if Paul Kersey dies, well then you don't lose a cop, right? You just lose this undercover guy. Like there's no culpability. If he gets caught, like I'm sure the police would just deny everything, and Kersey would be screwed. They have nothing to lose by having Kersey, you know, kind of do the dirty work. And uh, yeah, and take out the bad guys. Um, But he, and even then, he he sort of barely does. There's even, there's even a scene where Schreiker confronts Bronson. It's like, okay, why haven't you killed any of these people yet? Which is a fair question. It's it's true. It's like I, I guess it's like Bron- Bronson does it for his own reasons. If you try to make him do it, he's gonna he's gonna do a sloppy job. Oh, but hey, speaking of uh, speaking of jobs that aren't sloppy. And I'm so happy this comes up three times in the movie. Bronson home alone's the apartment he's living in. Yeah, he does. He does. He sets up uh, traps, and it, it makes sense because you're seeing a lot of break-ins, and really all, all the all the inciting incidents in Death Wish one and two were domestic break-ins. 
so that he's being a bit more, um, you know, setting up his own security system, so to speak. I, I, I thought just, it was a good touch. I I, I know, and it also it, it's it's the only acknowledgement that he's an architect. Even even though I guess what he's doing is not architecture; it's engineering. Um, but like it's it's the only acknowledgement that he is a smart guy who does a very technical job, uh, and presumably is still doing it. Um, but so the three the three traps he rigs up, he discovers that somebody's been sneaking into. So the friend's apartment he's living in rent free. So he finds out somebody's been sneaking in the bathroom window. So he takes a cabinet door and drives a bunch of nails through it and leaves it under that window. So when somebody jumps in, you know their feet get full of nails. Uh, and we never see that happen. We only see the aftermath when he sees a, a pair of bloody footprints in uh, in the bathroom, and he has this smug, self satisfied smile. So the uh, the old Jewish couple, he sets up what I can only describe as a catapult mouse trap. Um, he's like, "I'll help you. I just let, let, uh, I just need a few th- to borrow a few things from you," which means that the couple had a two by four, two high tension springs. Uh, and some uh, and some piano wire just in their apartment. But he rigs up this thing, so when somebody opens their bathroom door, this big board springs forward and whacks whoever does it in the face, which it does at one point while they're eating dinner, and there's teeth embedded in the board. Ugh. And then finally, and we and this this comes up in the final battle. A punk opens a door, and there's a similar device, except it has a switchblade loaded in it, so when the board springs up, it drives the knife directly into the guy's forehead. Yeah, some of them stretch believability, but it's a nice touch, and that he's doing it for his neighbors and not just himself. That shows what a nice guy Paul Kersey is. Well, Um, you know what he is? He's a vigilante Bugs Bunny in this movie. Yeah, no, it's certainly the, the tune. The tone is more cartoony, that's for sure. And and you have a bit uh, later on in the film uh, where he starts to have a bit of a relationship with the public defender Catherine Davis, played by Deborah Raffin, which is so forced because she. Yeah. When he when he when because that's the thing is she she initially shows up to be his public defender. She doesn't get him out of prison. The police make her think that. She got him out of prison, uh, but really they just let him go, and like out of nowhere, she just shows up at his. She just shows up in the neighborhood uh, to talk about how he's got grounds to sue the police department for wrongful arrest, um, and instead they end up having a date, and then many scenes later they remember that that date happens, and we just get we get some forced romance. Um, Bronson eventually explains that his wife was murdered a long time ago. They have sex, which we, we, we are not graced with a Bronson sex scene in this film, although we do see him shirtless afterwards putting his clothes back on. But, like, the, the movie introduces her, forgets about her, then crams her back into the movie just so we care about her enough so that when they're after sex, they're going to go to, a I think, a Chinese restaurant to get some food in the middle of the night. He stops at the post office to get something out of his uh, post office box, and the punks have been tailing them all night, letting them have their whole series of romantic encounters. When she's left alone in the car, they knock her unconscious, put the car in, start the car, put it in gear, and let it go down a busy road. And this is a part that should make us horrified and sad. 
Uh, but again, she's a woman in this movie, so she only exists to be brutalized and killed. The car goes down a ra- goes down a road, hits another car, and then they both cars explode in a massive fireball, and it's suddenly the funniest scene in the movie. It's the size of the explosion, I think, that really does it. Well, it seems like a parody. Mm-hmm. It's it's like in The Simpsons when things that aren't strictly explosive blow up. Uh, the, the the explosion is so goddamn huge, it can't help but be funny. And I think, I mean, you want to talk about, like, big explosions. Like, in the final battle of the movie, Kersey has a rocket launcher. Yeah, so so the <laughs> Ernest Borgnine guy, so the friend that Paul Kersey was going to visit was, like, the as near as I can tell, the only connection, and even this connection isn't spelled out, it's only implied, the friend, uh, so we know from the first film that Bronson was a conscientious objector in the Korean War and worked in the medical corps. Well, the friend he was visiting was in the Korean War, but he actually served as a soldier, um, and so, and apparently so did the Ernest Borgnine guy. Well, apparently, the Ernest Borgnine guy in a closet has two massive machine guns that his, that, that Paul's friend brought back from the war. Um, I'm gonna, so, so here's the deal. If you're in the army, the army doesn't just let you walk away with with weaponry especially weaponry so big it's meant to be mounted on a tr- on a tripod a firing point or a vehicle that's how big these these automatic weapons are um i can only presume he bought them as, as military surplus but the way the way the Ernest Borgnine guy talks about it it's as if the moment they mustered out they just let them keep them um and he's had these weapons the whole time and, and that's the other thing we find out. Everyone in this apartment has weapons. Yeah, it, it it's awfully convenient. It, it does make that last b- battle kind of fun because everyone is participating. And you don't get to see a lot of old people with guns running around that much. Uh, and, they, and they're character actors, right? It's not like it's Schwarzenegger and Stallone running around with guns. It's people you wouldn't expect i think that makes the the ending of, the, of this you know kind of fun well you um, know, it, it's it's strange because on, like, on the one hand i love seeing people rise up against people who are oppressing or brutalizing them um and you know i love that it's just normal people fighting back but at the same time what what is the point of this movie uh, like the moral point of this movie seems to be the world would be a better place if old people were just allowed to assault and murder young people. Yeah, you don't watch uh, Death Wish movies for some for morality. Um, <laughs> no. But I mean, this with the rocket launcher at the end, with that explosion with the car in the beginning. I mean, this whole movie the the way they do the violence is ridiculous. When people get shot, like they their body l- lurches back like twenty feet. It's it's good old fashioned canon violence. It, it really reminded me of um, the over the top violence in those oh those those arcade games. Like I think one of them might have been called Area Fifty One or something, where they film full motion <laughs> video of people that kind of like pop out from behind boxes and you shoot them and they go flying back and explode. Oh yeah, or or, or the House of the Dead or some of those uh, games. It it, it just. 
it it's people say video game violence a lot, but this one I think really sort of feels like a a video game with all the explosions, all the different weaponry. They go through different environments. There's mm-hmm. thrilling chases. There's mooks. There are bosses. There are ambushes. Like, yeah, this you could totally play this as a video game, and it would be interesting environments, frankly. But yeah, and, and but that's the, the that's the so this is something that I tried to do some research about this because many at many points in the movie, uh, various police officers and other people keep saying that that guns are illegal. Uh, and there's even a scene where the old Jewish couple, they have a pistol, and it gets taken away by the police. Um, and 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 I, I tried to do some research into this, because that, being as this is supposed to take place in New York, that seemed very baffling. Uh, the, the, the idea of an, uh, that, that people would, wouldn't be able to keep uh, firearms... Um, it, it's it would seem strange, and I did and I did some pre-search, uh, and as near as I can tell, what the movie gets wrong is it's perfectly legal to have a, to own a handgun in New York. However, it must be registered, but it's not like getting it registered is difficult. So apparently, everyone in this movie just has an unregistered firearm and is too lazy to go to the registering authority and just get it registered thus making it perfectly legal to have it in their home. And that's it's good good research there, but that's that's very strange that um yeah, I, I it it is it is very puzzling. I wish there was a more organic way in the story of how everyone had all these weapons um or even well, more montages of like them like being trained or something by Bronson or just, just something, or even a few more character moments, something to make that come together. Because while it is nice to see Kersey and friends against the gain, kind of the good guy gain against the bad guy gain, so to speak, uh, it is something is missing. Well, you know what it is, is that when it comes down to it, like it feels like there's nothing at stake. Because by this point in the series, Bronson is invincible. He gets, he gets like a Kevlar vest. Um, and like in several of the, several of the shootout scenes, he's just standing out in the open, apparently taking hits all the time, but like, like Superman, he's completely unfazed. And so like, it's impossible because in the first, in the first two films, you know, he is mortal. He does sustain injuries because of these risks that he's taking. In this movie, he doesn't. There's even a callback to when he got stabbed in the first film. He gets stabbed in this movie. Oh, the vest takes it. He suffered. He suffers no injuries. We need to know that he's mortal, but for all intents and purposes, he's not. Um, and the only thing that, like, the only thing really d- decent about him wearing a Kevlar vest is a Fraker, the leader, the reverse Mohawk leader of the gang. That inspires him to get a Kevlar vest, too. So when he tries to jump Kersey in the apartment in the middle of the big riot that's going on, you know, he's shot six times. Well, it turns out he's not dead. He's just faking being dead. And he jumps back up uh, and atta- tries to attack uh, tries to attack both Kersey and Shriker, who are now both in the apartment. Shriker takes the hit. And Bronson, the way he dispatches the leader of the gang... So earlier, he, he, he gets a bunch of guns by mail order, and one of the things he gets by mail order is a law, is a law rocket launcher with two rocket-propelled grenades. 
and he just shoots a rocket-propelled grenade uh, at Fraker. And we, then we cut to an exterior, and we just see the side of the apartment building explode. And Kersey and Schreiker are completely unscathed, even though they were both standing about five feet away from where this rocket-propelled grenade detonated. They should, it, they should at least be deaf and concussed. That rocket launcher at the end, though, really makes that a lot of fun. I like that explosion you described, even though, yes, it's it's ridiculous. They both should be dead from him trying to use it at such a point-blank range with the blowback. Uh, it, I mean, how, how can you top a rocket launcher? I, maybe, what, in the next movie, does Paul Kersey get into a helicopter and shoot a man to death? <laughs> yeah, but, but also, he got that through the U.S. Postal Service, like that's that's military grade hardware um unless you have a hell of a lot of licenses and liabilities it's illegal to own that but also beyond that and i say this at i used to work for the the US postal service you can't just ship explosive material through the US postal service i think paul kersey has connections that they don't go into <laughs> he has to i think that's that's why he gets all this weaponry um, yeah that's why the the police kind of go easy on him. I think he has like guys watching. He has guys watching the cops, and then he has guys watching the guys watching the cops. He has like layers and layers of a secret <laughs> web of informants all around. The crazy wherever effect. He, wherever he lives, whether it's New York City or Chicago or whatever it is. Yeah, and strangely enough, though, I like how this ends. Where where Stryker, you know, with his stab wound, he's like, you know, okay. Get your get your stuff and get out of here before the rest of the rest of my team shows up. So Bronson just picks up his suitcase, which I guess he hasn't unpacked since he arrived, and he just walks away. And it and it, the credits play over a sustained shot of him walking down the street while cars around cars and buildings around him are on fire, and we keep seeing police cars and rescue vehicles driving up the road. And this being a canon film, I'm pretty sure there's only one police car and one rescue vehicle, and they're just going around the block and then coming back up the road to make it look like to make it look like multiple vehicles are entering the scene. Oh, no doubt. It it, it is um yeah, something about the last shot of him walking away, it, it's shades of what you would see in that Incredible Hulk TV show. Well, it's also kind of like a credits. Western. It's it's, yes, it's our yeah. hero riding off into the sunset. True. Yeah, uh, so I mean, overall, I, I would recommend Death Wish 3. I, I like that the tone is a bit lighter and that it's um, just pretty ridiculous. Like, if if you're in the mood, if, if let's say you had a friend over and they said, uh, Thrasher, uh, you know, I, I want to watch like a, a real 80s sort of cheeseball action movie. Like you could do worse than put on Death Wish 3. Yeah, this this is a sequel. Yes, for me, this is a this is a good, bad movie. It's it's awful in a thousand little ways from beginning to end and a few big ways. And yet it is so over the top and entertaining in its badness. I It's str- strange. Strangely enough, this is. This is the kind of movie that I would like to share on a bad movie night. Oh, this is sort of interesting from the trivia. I guess uh, Charles Bronson is wanting too much money in the beginning, so Cannon was thinking of recasting him with uh, Chuck Norris. Oh my gosh. And uh Cannon was not a stranger to Chuck Norris films. No, they should do it. They should have done a a Death Wish Delta Force crossover. That's what they should have done. 
Yeah, Delta Force or Missing in Action, uh, one of those. Um, all right, so for uh, for Pitch's sequel, I had had something in mind. I, I think you know Paul Kersey, He's getting old. He wants to rest, so he goes um, he goes to Hawaii, <laughs> and he's there. Is it the same resort he went to with his wife in the first film? Yeah, let, let's say it is. Let's say it's the anniversary of when his wife of his. Uh, not the anniversary of when his wife was killed, but be a bit grisly, but the anniversary of when he was married to his, his wife. And uh, he goes to Hawaii and, and walks the same beach, and maybe you would crossfade scenes from the first film to him now as an older man looking at the empty parts of the beach. And he's sitting there on, on the patio of his uh, hotel room drinking a, a pina colada when he sees uh, an explosion in, in the swimming pool area of the hotel. And a, a big explosion, like a dozen people die. And as Kersey goes to investigate, he, he, all he sees is a note that says, like, we're on to you, Kersey. And it becomes sort of a, uh, a, a bit of like a stranger in a strange land kind of story. Because um, in Hawaii, although it's in the United States, there's a lot of like unpopulated areas, you get a lot of scenic stuff going on with the the back roads of uh, Hawaii. He'd probably go to a few different islands to try and piece together this mystery. And uh, the, the twist at the end that turns out the the guy responsible for that explosion um, is uh, was a waiter way back when Bronson and his wife were at that resort, and they didn't tip him, so he's held a grudge. <laughs> And when he heard Kersey was going back, he started his plan. So uh, always tip your waiters, but it, it would be called uh, Death Wish Goes Hawaiian. <laughs> I wanted to have like a ukulele-based theme song that explains the plot. Maybe another title would be the, the Luau Lowdown. <laughs> Luau's and hot lead. Poi and punishment. Poi and punishment. Uh... <laughs> So I, I'm also going to take uh, Bronson to another location. So they this movie, this movie, you know, obviously apparently was cheaper to film in Britain. Um, well, you know, it's even cheaper than filming in Britain and making it look like New York. Filming in Britain and just letting it be Britain. So my death wish, uh, my death wish uh, sequel is uh, Kersey goes to uh, goes to London. Uh, to attend an architecture conference that's going on there. Maybe he's up for some award. Um, but for his firm being cheapskates, they put him in a hotel in a really terrible neighborhood. A neighborhood that is terrorized every night by a little Cockney Street gang called the Droogies. And uh, or the Droogs. And they are going to be... And we're going we're gonna to get Malcolm McDowell back. He's going to be the ringleader of this gang. <laughs> So, Bronson, we're not even going to have an inciting incident. At this point, Bronson's like, oh, punks, I better kill him. So, he just, so Bronson just decides to make trouble. So, he attends the architectural conference every day, and we get, you know, a lot of, like, personal stuff, a lot of stuff with other architects from all around, from all around the world. Then at night, uh, he gets out his American handgun and goes after the droogs, and it's just escalating ultraviolence that reaches comical, comical levels um, in the end, the Droogs will find out he's an architect at that conference, so the Droogs will try to take the conference hostage, and then it becomes diehard, but in the conference center. And in the end, 
Kersey uh, will of course uh, will of course uh, shoot shoot his way out. But the British police are so polite that they let Paul Kersey go, and he goes back he goes back to America after leaving this blood stained trail all over London. Uh, and we're gonna call this uh, Death Wish uh, Death Wish Four Bangers and Mash. Hmm. Um, so would there be a scene along the lines of all these food scenes in these Death Wish movies where Charles Bronson, you know, gets mushy peas and he wonders what that is? Oh, yeah, but he'll also go out for a kebab and, you know, some punk, mm-hmm. the droogs, will, will threaten the kebab shop owners and he'll avenge the kebab shop owners, so. Maybe a nice curry, yeah. He'll have a, he'll have a full English breakfast at one point. It'll, it'll be pretty, yeah, we'll get, we'll get lots of food scenes, lots of food scenes, as many food scenes as there are shootout scenes. Oh, and he will continue to get, he will continue to get weapons overnighted from the United States throughout the movie. Uh, and they will keep escalating. Like, it'll start with just, like, a Derringer, but uh, it'll get shipped to the post office, no questions asked. At the end of the movie, he'll get, in the middle of a fight, a postal employee will bring him a little box, and he'll reach into the box and pull out a pull out a Vulcan cannon, and that's what he'll use in the final shootout. Very good, very good. All right. Um, so now we're going on to what you're watching... And what are you watching? Yeah, so I, I saw a new movie in the theater uh, yesterday. No, yeah. I take that back on Friday, so two days ago. Uh, this is a a biopic about Elton John called Rocket Man. How is that? Star- I've been very intrigued by the yeah, trailers. Starring Terry Edgerton. Uh, so it's rated R, unlike Bohemian Rhapsody, which was PG-13. And what's interesting is the director of this, Dexter Fletcher, he took over production of Bohemian Rhapsody after Brian Singer was fired. Um, so there's some connection there. I'd say uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, the one about Queen, was more of a concert kind of film, but also very, um, they played it very safe. Rocket Man is more fantastical. It feels like, it really feels like they're going to make this into a Broadway show. So you have a lot of dancing numbers, a lot of sort of fantasy sequences. And it's not, a, what I liked about it, and Elton John is one of the producers, is it's not afraid to make Elton John look bad and look like an asshole. Um so you talk about you're, you're you've compared this a bit to Bohemian Rhapsody. I think I think yep. there's I, I think the reason the reason for those differences is one, I I I think I think Elton John doesn't feel like he has anything to hide. So there's no reason why right. his biopic needs to be sanitized. But but two, it's my understanding that the version of Bohemian Rhapsody that we got is the version that the surviving members of Queen allowed the studio to make. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's right, and it it was hugely successful and won Oscars and, and all these things, and this one, it's it's making good money, but um, Elton John was really insistent on this being rated R. You have, um, you know, it doesn't shy away from Elton John being gay. You have some, some sex scenes in there. I wouldn't call them explicit. Uh, this Wikipedia page I'm reading off of has an outright lie in which it says Rocket Man was the first major Hollywood production to show a gay male sex scene, which that's that's categorically false. That would be uh, that would be Wet Hot American Summer. You think that's the first? I bet there's stuff before then. Like it depends I, 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 what they. I'm sure there is, but yeah. like that's that's the first and that's the the oldest one I'm I'm aware of. I'm sure there is there there is more, and I probably should look into that. That, that seems like a weird thing to. Uh, 
to add on there. I mean, and, and, and they got that research from a Hollywood Reporter story, but I'm, I'm very, very skeptical of that claim. Regardless, you know, it it's good. They do mainly uh, Elton John hits. Um, they don't do his whole career. They do it up to um, the early 80s. But a lot of the focus is about him and his relationship with uh, the his lyricist, Bernie Toppin. So, you know what I wish would happen whenever there's a biopic of a person like and how does this not happen all the time when there's a when there's a biopic of a person who's been a guest on The Muppet Show? Why aren't the Muppets in it? I, I wondered that myself. Uh, they do have him do Crocodile Rock. They do have him in a lot of the silly outfits he wore. And um, I mean, this was a Paramount Pictures. The Muppets are Disney, but I, I'm sure they could have. <laughs> Got something in there. I think one thing that's pretty funny that I read they wanted to do, but they couldn't get the schedules working, is they wanted to have Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury in a cameo in the scene. Having tea with Elton or something. Yeah, I think so. Um, So, but it's... uh, I also was kind of hoping for a a reference to William Shatner's cover of Rocket Man, but alas, there is not... (laughs) I guess that would have been a whole different movie. Maybe that'll be in his biopic. I, I can't even imagine how you would do a William in, Shatner in, biopic because you in probably... all honesty, I think it's only a matter of time before we get a movie about the making of Star Trek or the making of one of the movies. Um, sure, and I, I, I am surprised that has not happened yet. You could do. Hmm. I think even like the making of like that for if I was to do a making of movie about a Star Trek movie, I think you would do it on Star Trek the motion picture uh, because it was very very expensive. It wasn't a sure thing. You had Gene Roddenberry trying to do a story that nobody wanted to do. I think there's some more inherent drama in there than perhaps some of the others. Part of me would love a, a, a comedy about the making of uh, Star Trek V. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, you ever listened to the podcast Inglorious Trexperts? No, no, I haven't. It, it's a very good Star Trek podcast uh, hosted by oh, Mark A. Altman and some other people in uh, Hollywood that are big Star Trek fans. They've written some of, some of their wrote books about Star Trek. Uh, but, but one of them recently, they had an episode on Star Trek Generations and they talked to Brandon Braga who was one of the writers on that script and they asked well when did you think uh, Star Trek Generations you know wasn't going to be what you wanted it to be and he said it was during the scripting process when we were writing the scene where uh, Kirk and Picard are are cooking scrambled eggs for each other (laughs) yeah if I was to see those two captains brought together that's not what i expect would happen right off the bat i think if they were trying to be too clever for their own good like he did in the interview it's funny he did mention well i thought well i can at least give them my mother's recipe so that's why he mentions he adds dill in the eggs <laughs> but huh. it um yeah i it, it is but it, anyway it was an interesting episode interesting show that i was they also had a star trek 5 one where they talked to the screenwriter of star trek 5 about some of the issues with that project and uh, so forth. But yeah, but Rocket Man, I'd recommend it. I liked it better than Bohemian Rhapsody. I think they're both good movies. Uh, a big difference with Rocket Man and Bohemian Rhapsody is in this, in this one, uh, Taron Edgerton, who people might know the most from uh, the, uh, the Kingsman movies, 
he actually sings all the songs himself. Oh, cool! It's not Elton John dubbed in. Um, the and only it's not like a sound alike. No, and it's not a sound alike. And you do over the end credits, you have a new Elton John song where it's Elton John singing with Terry Edgerton, but but otherwise. Oh, that's neat. But it, it's pretty neat. I think it, it makes the scenes a bit more raw, and uh, the movie isn't very kind towards Elton John's parents. But I think when you watch the movie, you can sort of see why. Um, but but very good, very good movie. Um, so there you go. All right. So I watched. Speak. Speaking of Death Wish, uh, I watched Death Kiss. Have you heard of this film? I've seen the poster. It's a guy that looks a hell of a lot like Charles Bronson, but it's not. Yeah, it's a. Uh, it's a. I think it's it's a guy named Ro- uh, Robert Bronzy. Uh, the character is simply in the is only credited as the stranger. And I think he's like he's a guy that just looks just like Charles Bronson, and as near as I can tell, everything he's ever done is just him like doing a Bronson style movie, like including like he has one coming out called Escape from Death Block Thirteen, <laughs> and it it also look it looks like a canon movie cover. It's him as Bronson with this machine gun. So I, I would love to know, I would love to know what his, uh, what his like hi- history is. Cause like, strangely enough, his oldest credit is appearing as himself in a documentary. Uh, and I, and then there's like almost a 10 year gap. And then he starts showing up in these movies. Oh, you know what? That was a, uh, Oh, apparently that like documentary was like a fake documentary about what if Bronson was still alive. So yeah, like that's that's his whole career, uh, and it and it pretty much it follows the pattern. It follows the pattern of the Death Wish films, except for two things. One, we never get an inciting incident. It's just kind of assumed that this is just what he does now is 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 kill criminals and take their stuff. Um, but then the other thing is that, and this is where it stumbles, it tries to acknowledge, it tries, it, it, it tries to make him fallible and tries to acknowledge the fact that redemptive violence is dangerous, it can have a real human cost, but unfortunately it absolves him of all guilt. Um, because the, the, whole, the whole big deal is, the story is told in a somewhat non-linear fashion, so between him just interrupting criminal happenings and and shooting everybody we keep cutting to this woman with a paralyzed daughter uh living living in this nice house in the country and the bronson character keeps delivering keeps putting these envelopes full of hundred dollar bills in their mailbox and they don't they don't know why and so there's a whole subplot where one day uh one day the mother sees him doing this and confronts him and they sort of strike up a friendship. He teaches her how to shoot. Then he kind of like vanishes from her life. There's no, there's no awkward sex scene, but you end up finding out that she used to be, she used to be a drug addict uh, and she was still a drug addict after she had had, she had had her little girl and that she went to, uh, she went to her dealer's house to to purchase some drugs and had her daughter with her and right when she got to the door she heard shooting well it turns out that shooting was the bronson character shooting all the drug dealers and addicts in the house um 
the woman and her daughter ran away, but a stray bullet hit her daughter in the back and paralyzed her. Um, and the reason Bronson's giving them all this money is that he he feels guilty for ins for instigating that shootout. But they spell out he doesn't know whether it was his stray bullet that paralyzed the girl or whether it's the stray bullet of the drug kingpin, who it turns out escaped the firefight. Um, he doesn't have a final confrontation with him until much later where he ends up knocking him unconscious, tying him to a tree, covering him in barbecue sauce, and the movie implies that he's eaten by wolves. Does uh, the actor in the lead, does he sound like Charles Bronson when he talks? No, no, he doesn't. Okay. I'm also not even sure it's his voice. A yeah. lot of the dialogue is dubbed in. Hmm. Like, you could tell, there's a whole lot of exteriors, and you can tell they probably didn't use the right kind of microphone for filming dialogue out of doors because you get very little ambient sound. All the dialogue is dubbed in. Um, and really the only clear sound you hear are stock sound effects. I'm not going to say like, I can't, I can't say this is a good movie, but I can really applaud their effort. They did everything they could to shoot this like a death wish movie. Um, the violence uh, is pretty nasty the um however they do use a lot of cgi blood which they try to cover it up by having the seed because like they're using real like bloody squibs whenever people get shot but then they in try to enhance it with these cgi blood explosions and so it takes you a moment to realize you're seeing cgi blood because the real effect the practical effect and the digital effect kind of overlap in a weird in a weird way that almost works um I, th I think I think what this movie what this movie really needs is I think it needs to it needs to make Bron it needs to make the Bronson character either make him responsible for the girl being paralyzed or or make him think he is directly responsible. Maybe he can find out it was someone else's bullet later, um, and he and he can be absolved that way. But like I found that really unsatisfying. The other interesting thing is Daniel Baldwin plays this uh, right wing radio sh show host who kind of delivers all the political messages, the ham-fisted political messages in this movie. Well, it turns out he and the Bronson guy are working together. Apparently, oh, and Daniel Baldwin's character is named Dan Forthright. And some for some reason, his show isn't called Forthright Radio. It's called, like, the Freedom Channel or something mm. like that. Um, for what it, so, Somehow, he has the bead on all the illegal activity going on in town and sends Bronson on his missions, but you don't find that out till the end. That's funny. Uh, okay, I'll have to check that out. That seems intriguing. I did see that poster when I was doing Death Wish research, and I'm like, this guy really looks like Charles Bronson. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in, I might, like, I'm probably never going to watch this again. And, and I guess fair, fair warning, um, this movie also has some brutal depictions of sexual assault in it um, that is pretty much on par with what we've just seen in Death Wish 3. Um that being said, I'm kind of interested. I might check out Escape from Death Block 13 when it comes out. I kind of want to know, let's see what they're going to do with that. It's kind of interesting that we're now at the point that there are filmmakers clearly inspired by canon films. I guess that was inevitable. Yeah, I know there's a few uh, documentaries about canon that are very entertaining. Yeah, and it's um, written and directed by Rene Perez, who's done a lot of... I guess, for lack of a better term, asylum type pictures, uh, alien showdown, uh, how the the day the old west stood still, the dead, the damned, and the darkness, um, lot lots of those kind of pseudo mockbusters. 
Okay, well, speaking of mockbusters, let's do our sequel scene. Oh, yes. Uh, what um, what character did you want to be? Um, I guess I'll do, I'll do uh, both the punks. Okay, I'll be Paul Kersey, and this is, uh, he's observing these punks uh, stealing a car. Well, it's not just a car, it's his car. It's his car. He buys okay. a fancy used luxury car for cash, which he even says, that's not my car, that's bait. And it does, and it does work. Although later he drives it around with no problems uh, and 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 repaired windows. I'd like to think Paul Kersey is an expert car mechanic on the side. He might as well have been. He's developed a lot of skills. Okay, so uh, I'll be Kersey. So I'm going to get started. Hey, what's the problem? What? With the car? What's the problem? Just get out of my fucking face! Who are you? We're stealing a fucking car. What's it to you? It's my car. Oh, now you're gonna die. Pew, pew. Percy shoots them both dead. Yeah. And, and he does it in plain view. Everybody sees in him. Daylight, no one yeah. presses charges. The car would have to be registered to him, or I guess registered to his fake name, Mr. Campbell. It's just one of those things. It's it's like a scene that happens in in a vacuum, which is as a bad movie delightful, but as like it's bad storytelling. <laughs> There's no consequences for that scene, right? Um, so next week we'll be talking about Death Wish for the Crackdown. Finally, we get a subtitle. Yeah, surprised it took this long. Um, <laughs> you can follow the show. Uh, on Twitter at SequelCast2 or look up the Facebook page and like that, uh, SequelCast2. Uh, follow me on Twitter at, M-A-T- at M-A-T-W-B-T. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Also, uh, check out MarkWithTheC.com because Mark with the C uh, wrote and performed our theme song. Very good. Uh, you can also listen to us on Stitcher at Stitcher.com or on the Stitcher app. Uh, if you're on, if you have the uh, Apple Podcast app, if you could go on and leave a review that really helps with the uh, downloads. Um, we got a recent review from a certain uh, Darth Revan that talked about how much he enjoyed the show. Cool. So we always love seeing stuff like that. Um, and yeah, there you go. So yeah, for, thanks for the review, Revan. Yeah. Thank 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 you, Mr. Revan. In fact, you know, why don't you talk for a second and I'll pull that review up on my phone. Oh, sure. Um, I guess, okay, so one, one dangling thread from this movie. So when the leader, when, when, uh, the leader of the punks goes back to their, goes back to the gang headquarters, there's this one guy who's in charge. And I guess to assert his dominance, the reverse Mohawk guy kills him. But what's crazy is the second in command he kills, he looks like there's this, this square shaped bulge on his, on his belly that makes it look like he's wearing a really cheap blood pack. And yet I have no idea what that really is because he gets stabbed through the jaw. So were they going to use a blood pack and then they just changed their mind at the last second or the jaw stab with the prop knife was the actor's choice? I don't know, but like I want to know what's up with that weird square underneath underneath the guy's shirt. It's a weird, it's a weird, weird misdirect. Uh, need me to vamp some more? Um, no, just this review, uh, it got taken down 
But I did see it posted earlier in the week. But anyway, Mr. Uh, Mr. Darth Revan, thank you for the review. I swear I'm not making that up. That's not very convincing. Okay, so as you mentioned before, Death Wish 4 is uh, next week. So, um, yeah, that means we're halfway through the series because we're after this, you know, we got Death Wish 4, Death Wish 5, and the remake, Death Wish. Oh, God, I... I, I... I'm both deep anticipating and dreading the remake. Well, the remake is directed by Eli Roth, which is an interesting choice. Huh. Interesting. All right. So, I, so. I have my issues with him as a director, but I love hearing him talk about about horror films. He has a great sense of humor and knows like everything about contemporary horror. Well, on Shudder, they have a show called The History of, of Horror Films or Eli Roth's History of Horror or something that's a documentary show. And then it also has a spinoff podcast where you hear the uncut interviews, including a two-hour interview he does with Quentin Tarantino. Oh, man. Which um, they, they, they really jump around a lot in their conversation, as you can imagine. Okay, so um, for Sequel Cast 2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Sure, I like stuff to get into.